When Jesus was here on earth, Jesus accomplished many different things. He's known best, of course, before his crucifixion and resurrection, kind of a big thing. Uh, then his, his, his miracles, his healing, walking on water, that's a big deal. His teaching ministry. I would say his teaching ministry was just as miraculous, but that's kind of down the bottom of the list off, and that's a ho-hum thing. I guess he had to do something while he was waiting to, to die for us or waiting to do the miracles. When actually his teaching ministry, this is my own uh, heresy, probably is what dictated between the time he went public in ministry and, and his death on the cross. He needed to share. He was here to teach us about the Father, to teach us what it meant to have a relationship with him and walk uh, with, with the Father. Now, there are different ways he taught. He preached straight-up sermons, question and answer time, informal stuff along the road. But his favorite way of teaching, it seems, was through short stories. He made up these, these, these stories. Uh, we call them amazing stories because each one, there's no off-the-cuff type story, each one had a specific purpose. Each one had a heavenly biblical principle that Christ knew. Your, his followers, you and I, would need to understand and, and embrace. There's no uh, frivolous, extra, optional thing. They, they, they have a principle that we need. And if we embrace, and, and this becomes part of our life, it, it transforms our, our, our life. Now, some of the stories are uh, longer, some are, are shorter. For today, and today's our last installment on our Amazing Stories series. We didn't cover them all. We covered a handful of them, though. I'm indebted to a friend of mine, Chris Dolson, pastor in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, very, very helpful. Um, there is a, a statue, a relatively famous statue. I don't know if you've ever seen this statue or not. It's called the Thinker. You've, you've seen this. Sometimes this is in front of libraries or you know philosophy halls in front of a college. Maybe you go into your professor's office and you got a little one that's kind of like a paperweight on her desk or a knickknack on on his shelf. Um, the thinker, it's the thinker. Um, you you got to ask yourself though, what's the thinker thinking about? Now, he looks like he's relatively in deep concentration. Is it just a representative of knowledge and, uh, you know, no one's going to tell me what to do and I'm going to chart my own course and think this through and get there? Is that what this represents? Or is he thinking about something specific? If so, what? Well, we know what the thinker was thinking about. This individual cast was actually removed from its original context. The thinker is thinking about hell. In 1880, August Radon was commissioned to uh, sculpt, put together a portal, a doorway into, into a, a museum. We got a slide of that. This doorway was going to take him 40 years of his life, working off and on, to, to make this very elaborate doorway. It's based on Dante's Inferno. If you go and you Google right now, Gates of Hell, this is what will come up, because this is titled, this portal, this work of Radon's, is titled The Gates of Hell. And it's, it's all about... Uh, Throughout it, the history or the, the, the story of Dante's Inferno, Inferno, of course, Italian for, for hell. If you look at right above the door, there's a very busy section. You can't see it real well here, so let's get a close-up. There's our thinker. 
And behind him is the cast of, of Dante's Inferno. And so the thinker, uh, art historians debate whether this is Dante or whether this is Adam or this, whether this was Redon himself. One thing that is not debatable, though, is what he's thinking about. He's thinking about hell. Redon said that for one year before he was commissioned to, to build this, he was obsessed. He was thinking constantly about hell via Dante's Inferno. The thinker is thinking about hell. That leads us to, to a parable, an amazing story. Not one of Jesus' most famous ones. Not, definitely not one of the longest ones. Just, just a very few verses. But in Matthew chapter 13, if you've got your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. Beginning in verse 47. Matthew 13, verse 47, he says, Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish when it was full. The fishermen pulled it up on shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus, if you go back, we talked about this earlier as far as how do you interpret a parable. You want to figure out who he's talking to. Well, if you go back in 13, it says that he left the crowds and he went into a house and his apostles came with him. And it was there. This was not to non-believer type people. These were his apostles that he turns around and he addresses this parable to. And he knows, I'm going to put these guys in charge. These guys are going to be in charge of the entire movement. I'm getting ready to leave. And when I leave, these guys will be in charge. But if they're going to be in charge correctly, if they're going to be able to, to do what I'm calling them to do, if they're going to be able to properly follow me, it's imperative that they understand, that they think are right about hell. And I would say for us, for his followers... If in fact, again, there's no throwaway passages. If in fact we're going to follow Christ fully, if we're going to fulfill completely what he's called us to fulfill, it's an impossibility to do that without a right understanding of, of hell. It's, it's, just, it's just needed. Now, our, our vision here is we want to transform Erie by introducing people to a transformational relationship with Jesus. Our goal in doing this is not so we can build this big old church. Our goal in doing this is not to acquire more voices that, that think and believe the same way we do so we can impact this, this culture and make them do what we want them to do. The goal of doing this is not even to reach out to people because they're lonely or because they're hurting or because they're depressed or because maybe they're embittered. It's because they are lost. It's because of what this text says. I mean, Jesus is saying... Y'all, here's, here's your mission. He gave it to us, Matthew 28, which is rendition of what we have. It's the same thing, we just worded it differently. He says, if you're going to complete it, you need something to spur you on. You need something to keep in mind. You need something to burn that urgency fire. And that is uh, uh, this truth about hell. Now, this is a tough doctrine, no question about it. It's a tough doctrine uh, to listen to. And I know folk, 
perhaps you do as well, who'll say, I believe in um, heaven, but I'm not so sure I believe in hell. And a question you have to ask at that point is, well, why do you believe in heaven? Where do you get this concept that there's a heaven? If you say from the Bible, you can't reject hell because the Bible, Jesus himself, will speak more of, of, of hell than heaven itself. To, to, to be logically consistent, you, you have to take the whole ball of wax. You can't pick and choose, well, I like this one, I don't, I don't like this one. Jesus thought a lot of, about hell. We know he did because he spoke a lot about hell, spoke more about hell than heaven. Here's just a couple of things that he said. Mark 9, he says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands go into hell where the fire never goes out, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You snakes, he's talking to the Pharisees. You brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside in the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew 25, he says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, and the, and the, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. You know, what? It's, it's interesting. We've got to keep this in mind. This idea of hell is often juxtaposed with heaven. Just look at the text in front of you. you. You've got folk, they'll be sent away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Logically, consistently, if you don't believe in hell, even though scripture says it, then you really can't believe in heaven either. It's a package deal, biblically. And again, I know some of y'all might be, you know, the balls may be coming up, blood might be starting to boil right now, and you're saying, you know what, this is a very difficult, this is one thing about the church that I don't like, and I struggle with this, and it's, and it, and it's an issue, and I, I, I know, I know that that can be so. But let me encourage you this, if this is what's going on in your heart, then I would encourage you to, to at least seek to listen as we try to unpack what God's Word says about hell, and at least know what you're opposing. And my guess is that there are some things that, you're, that might be a surprise. So, uh, hell, what a, what a fascinating doctrine. But let's, let's look at it through our, our text this morning. Let's just mention a couple of things about it. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in the baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. Angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous. Now, Jesus, when he ministered here on earth, he was north of Israel. There's a lake, decent-sized lake, the Sea of Galilee. And he spent most of his time really around that lake. So folk were very, very familiar with fishing. And so he's using a, 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 a parable, a story that they would be very f familiar with. And it's interesting when he says here that it's like a, a, a net that caught all kinds of fish. What he's saying is that in the end, the judgment, it will catch 
everybody, the all kinds of fish, fish from every race, every nation, every language group, every religious belief system, every philosophical belief system, every socioeconomic system. It catches everybody. In the end, everybody is caught. Now, tell you what, that is something that will run smack dab against our, our 21st century relativistic culture. I mean, everybody is, is judged on their own standards. That's it. You know, we, we don't think anybody else ought to be telling us what to do. You need to, to know that on one level, we're, we're uh, directed by our cultural sensitivity here because, you know, a lot of cultures in the world today, not in the West, but a lot of cultures in the world today who aren't worse than us, have no problem with this issue. Of course the king can set the rules. And of course the people abide by them. And of course there's issues if they don't. But our culture has sometimes trumped our view of, of, of Scripture, of, of the Word of God. Hebrews nine twenty seven says that it's appointed unto man once to die. And after that, the judgment. Everybody gets caught. Everybody gets caught. The text says, not only is everybody caught, but everybody, you see this, will end up into one of only two categories. Right? Do you see this? When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets. But threw the bad away. They, they pulled the fish up. They went through which ones were marketable. But there was the one pile. The other ones that no one was going to buy. They couldn't sell. They got, they got rid of those. Again, very familiar to the people. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous. And throw them into the fiery furnace where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He knows there's only how many categories. There's only two categories. Right? They didn't, put, they didn't put the marketable fish here and the unmarketable fish here. And then the, ah, maybe kind of pile. There was no, ah, maybe kind of pile. There was just two piles. And we don't like this. Because we, we can, we're, not, we're not fools. We really, righteous. Well, I'm not so sure I'm in that category. But I'm not in the unrighteous category either. There must be a third category. And Jesus says, no, no, there's no third category. Earlier in the chapter, he's talking to people who are more into farming than they are fishing. And he says, same, same type of thing. Parable that says the same, has the same idea. He says that at the end, you know, the kingdom of God is, is like a farmer that sowed his seed. And then wheat, wheat came up, but weeds came up as well. And throughout the duration, they just grew together. Just like in the sea, the fish just all swam together. He says, but at the end... What's going to happen is, is the, the angels will come and they will harvest the, 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 the wheat and the weeds and they will burn up the weeds. In Matthew 25, Jesus is talking to folk who are more into ranching than they are farming or, or fishing. And he says, at the end, same sort of thing. He says, at the end, the Son of Man is going to come and he's going to, he's going to like a shepherd, he's going to separate the people. Like a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. Two categories, not three categories. Sheep and the goats. And at the end, what's going to happen to the goats is the same thing that's going to happen to the weeds, the same thing that's going to happen to the, the bad, bad fish. Only two categories. If you're counting on a third category somewhere, um, there's a third thing somewhere, third category that I can roll into and kind of burn the chaff off and see, and then I'm, I'll be purified and then I can get into heaven. If you're counting on a third category, please know it's a non-biblical deal. You, you, you really need to check that out because it's, it's not what Scripture would say. It also lets us know that not just is everyone going to get caught, 
not just is everyone going to be separated into one of only two categories, but everybody in that second category ends up in hell, right? This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Describing hell is a, a, a difficult thing. And one of the questions that comes up at this point often is, are the fiery flames of hell literal? Are they literal? Oh. That's a different question than saying, is hell literal? Yes, hell's a literal place, clearly. Are the fiery flames literal? Um, we know that, that Scripture embraces all genres of literature. And to interpret the properly, then you need to uh, understand what that genre is. You know, Jesus said, I am the door. No, we don't think he's a real a door. I mean, we know it's a door named Jesus. No, we know what he's talking about. He's the way in. Okay, got it, got it, got it. Jesus says, I am the vine. Well, we don't really think he was a big vine named Jesus. We know what he's talking about. We've got to be plugged into the vine if we want to grow. We, we got that. We understand. Uh, it's, it's pictures. It's metaphor. We see this in description of heaven. In Revelation, John talks about heaven a lot. And he, and he says, it was like, it was like, it was like. Um, he's using words and pictures and images that the people knew to describe something that's indescribable. So, for example, in heaven we get harps. And maybe you're thinking, oh, this is, ah, that's heaven? You know, I'm not so, I don't like harps and I'm not into harp music and I don't know how to play harp. And you're, it's just not a good thing. And, and maybe we really get harps. I, I don't know. I think today he might say you get pianos or guitars or something. Um, but the goal is this. This is, this is the, the big idea behind that. That in heaven, we will be able to purely worship God. That his audience, his, his, this was written to them before it was written to us. His audience would have understood the instrument is, is an instrument of worship. What he's saying is in heaven, we can worship without... You, you know what it's like. You come here sometimes and maybe someone messes up up here or the slides. Are, and, and maybe you just have a headache or you got something on your mind or you don't feel good. And you're kind of into it. Ah, 30%. 80% maybe on a good day. But there's just issues down here. He's saying in heaven. You know what? No issues. You will be able to worship without the flesh messing you up. You and I have never experienced that. I don't care how good. If you think of the best worship time you've ever had, you've never had that. He's saying, that's the way it's going to be in heaven. Heaven, we get white robes. You're thinking, oh, it's going to limit my identity. And my... Maybe we get them. I don't know. But I know this is what it means. Don't, don't, don't miss what it means. It means that in heaven, we are pure. You know what? Again, we don't have to deal with our flesh. There's no more regrets. There, there's no more, I wish I could have. There's more, I can't. That's all gone. All of, all of our being before God, and right now what's limited by our flesh, is, is that's all gone, and it, we're pure. Something we've never experienced. It says that heaven is, is a city. Maybe you've got bad pictures of a city, dirty place. The, the picture that it, it's supposed to bring about, that conjure up the, the, the thought, is that it's a place of relationship. I mean, your best relationship, my best relationship at best is sometimes um, it's, it's faltering. It's going to make, it's going to be a mess. And you know as well as I do, down here, relationships just take work and you got to keep going. And sometimes they, they, they fluctuate. Heaven, our relationships will be perfect. It's, it's golden streets. If the streets are gold, is it really gold on the streets? I don't, I don't know. But I think what he's telling us is that which we think is so doggone important is like dirt and heaven. 
He talks about, it talks about a river and trees with fruit on them. 24, you know, it's 724, it's just 12 months a year and it's, it's always there. Is that really there? It may be really there. I, I don't know. But what he's saying is that we will have everything we need for safety, for security, for nourishment. We will be filled. We will be uh, completed Purely, we don't need to stock up anything for a rainy day. We don't need special insurance. It is, it is complete as far as taking care of us. These are pictures that he's painting, uh, concrete things to help us understand abstract ideas of what heaven's about. So much better than just uh, the literal robin and harp. I think they do the same thing with hell. Because how can you find terminology that describes something so otherworldly? And so when it talks about flames, maybe there are real flames there. I think not. I think what he's saying is it's a place of intense pain. I was driving a while back. I mean, this was years and years ago. Uh, I was a youth pastor, and there was a, one of my guys. He's actually in college. He went through a pretty big loss, but I didn't think he'd really grappled with it. So I'm driving. I'm trying to pull this out of him. And all of a sudden, it starts to dawn on him what had happened, what he lost, and he just comes unglued in my car. He's screaming and wailing and banging on my dashboard. And just the emotional pain of a broken heart. So much greater than, than a broken body. I think hell, Luke 16, will be part of that emotional pain. Um, we know, we know uh, if we eat junk food and we don't exercise, we abuse our bodies, one day there'll be a price to pay. Everyone knows, we all know that, everyone knows that. But what happens? We still eat junk food and we don't exercise and we abuse our bodies a little, little bit, not a lot. Somehow thinking that we're going to escape that. But we all know there will be a price to pay. But when that day comes and that happens, and whether we get a bad prognosis from the doctor or our health is crumbling, then we're filled with incredible regret and remorse. Oh no, there's no second chance. This is it. I think this is the pain of, of hell. Uh, physical too. I have hell also is described as a place of utter darkness. Now, how can you have a place of flames and utter darkness at the same time? We don't want to miss the. Some people get real hung up on this. The picture here is of utter darkness. Is that it's a place of of loneliness. It's aloneness. Whether you can see anyone else or not, I I, I don't know. It's irrelevant to me because they're not going to be in a position to encourage or comfort you. We know this. we got a little headache down here, and we don't want to help anybody else out. We don't want to do anything else, and we're just going to fix this ourselves. So much greater in, in hell, aloneness, deep, deep aloneness. The worm doesn't die in, in hell. Does this mean we're, we're covered with worms forever? I, I think the emphasis there on the, is on the doesn't die, and that this goes on for. Forever. So are the, the flames, uh, are they literal? Hell is literal. Just as heaven is so much greater than any way we could describe it, I believe hell is so much more hideous than any way we could describe it as well. Let me show you a quote uh, from Francis Chan. He wrote a book a while back, Erasing Hell. It was a response to Rob Bell's book, Where Love Wins, where he does erase hell. Chan does a Bible, a deep Bible study. It's a good book. But he says this. He says, Most evangelical Christians who believe that hell is a literal place and that its duration is forever, which we do, do not interpret the image, imagery, fire imagery literally. 
Well-known figures such as John Calvin, Martin Luther, C.S. Lewis, Billy Graham, D.A. Carson, J.I. Packer, and Sinclair Ferguson all understand the fire imagery non-literally. Don't let you don't think that that pulls the sting out of hell. Again, I believe hell is a much worse scenario than anything we could, any other way we could go. Uh, another question that folk have when you start talking about hell, and you hear this often, is isn't the concept of hell kind of an overkill? I mean, you got somebody who lives for uh, 70 years, and yeah, they sin, whatever, and now they're going to spend forever, eternity in, in hell. It just, just, just does not seem just in my mind. I thought God was a God of justice, and it doesn't seem like there's, there's justice there. You know, isn't uh, hell a bit of an over, overkill? John chapter 5, 28 and 29. And this is an excellent text, because some people, some Christian folk, People say hell is a, uh, uh, it's, it's annihilation. You know what I mean? When you die, you're all done. If you die and you're a Christian, you always go to heaven. But if you die and you're not a Christian, eh, you just, you're just all, all done. But look what is said here. Jesus says, don't be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Notice that all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live. And those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. The grave is not the end. There will be a resurrection. And there will be a resurrection of, of those to life. and be, There will be a resurrection, according to Jesus, of those to eternal punishment as well. If you followed in the news lately, the um, story of Davy and Amanda Blackburn, if you're familiar with this, uh, both of those kids grew up in pastor's homes. Uh, went to Bible college where they, they, they met. Uh, for a while, Davy was the youth pastor at Perry Noble's church in South Carolina, big, big church. Uh, they decided they were going to move to Indianapolis and start their own church. And so they, they moved there. They, got, they had their, their child, Weston, was just, uh, just a toddler. Uh, Amanda's pregnant with the second one. Uh, like a week and a half, two weeks ago now, uh, Davy went to the gym in the morning, and someone broke in their house and shot and killed Amanda, the 28-year-old wife. Uh, how long did that take the perpetrator to do all that? Well, um, 10 minutes, I don't, I don't know. How many of us would say, it took him 10 minutes to do that, we think when he's caught, we should put him in prison for 10 minutes? How many of, if let's say someone broke into a house of, of, of one of your best friends, maybe some family member, and they tie up the parents, and they make, they make the parents watch them hurt the children, and then they torture them all, and they kill them all, uh, takes them, what, an hour and a half, maybe, and, and, and then we catch them, and how many of us would think justice is done if, wow, it's an hour and a half, he should probably be in prison then for an hour and a half? We know that the, the length of the punishment has nothing to do with how long it took to commit it. We, we know that. In this world, we would be aghast if, if justice was, was, was farmed out that way. That would not be justice. We know that, that the, the, the punishment is not directed to the time, it's irrelevant, but to the heinousness of the crime. Is it possible that sinning against an eternal, infinitely good God who sent his son to die for them. And Hebrews says when you ignore Christ at that point, you've trampled underfoot his blood. Is it possible that the 
the punishment is equal to to the crime. So just just a possibility. I, I think I think it might it might be. Also, when God created us, I mean, think of the, the, the greatest good that could possibly be. Greatest good, love and joy and peace and ecstasy for forever, right? That's the greatest good. Well, let's say you're married and you have a great, let's say you've got a perfect marriage, okay? It's, it's love and joy and peace and ecstasy continuously all the time. But sooner or later, one of those people will die, and so when the person is buried, their, their spouse, do you say, I'm assuming they're going to be very, very sad, right? And we don't say, well, come on, hey, you had 50 good years together. Still, that person knows this is not the way it's supposed to end. This is not a good thing. The best thing, would it not be, for that to be eternal? When God cre- he creates the best, not a good thing, he creates the best thing, and he created people in his image, Part of being created in the image of God is to be eternal. So, so we could experience eternally the joy and the peace and the ecstasy forever and ever and ever and ever. Now the flip side is people are eternal. And so they'll be eternal wherever they, they go. You say, well, can't God create uh, some people who are eternal and some people who are not? And they, the short answer to that is no. Because God, there are some things God can't do. He cannot create, you know, a round peg. He cannot create a round square. He can't create a rock so big he can't pick it up. He can't, he can't, there's some things God cannot sin, Scripture tells us. There's some things God can't do. When he creates mankind in his image, he has to create them eternal. That's, that's the way it is. But you gotta, you gotta, you gotta know this with God. As far as we get these characters, and most of them are from the, the media or, or a culture again of mean God who puts people in hell, mean, mean God. Notice what Scripture says about God in this regard. Second Peter says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You see that? Not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. This is God's heart. Scripture is very clear on this. 1 Timothy 2. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. God wants every. He doesn't want anybody. Ezekiel 33, 11. Look what he says. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they might turn from their ways and live. God's heart on this is very clear. You may still struggle. Well, I don't understand then between that and and hell. Um, Why would a loving God condemn people to hell? If God's a loving God, how can a loving God throw people in hell? Again, you go back to where do you get the idea that God is loving? Who, Who told you that? Where do you get that idea? Oh, the Bible. And that's true. God is love according to scripture. Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Uh, God so loved the world. God demonstrates his love towards us. Yeah, God is love, certainly. But the same Bible that tells us he's love tells us there will be a judgment and that he judges. Again, you can't take one without the other and say, well, I, I like this one. I don't like this one. 
uh, we, we have no, no claim for being able to, to do that. Um, I think what happens is, 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 I mean, what we need to do is we need to educate ourselves biblically because what happens is we get this caricature of, of hell, that I, of heaven and hell, that it came from I, I don't know where, but not God's word. Heaven is like the Bahamas in January. You know, it's sunny and it's warm and there's crystal blue waters and there's white sand beaches and there's, I can sit on the beach, someone gives me drinks, I have coconuts and it's just, it's just pleasant and there's friends and everyone's laughing and I can eat all I want and there's no consequences. It's, it's like, it's like, it's like I can hang out at a five star resort for forever and not pay the bill. This is just a wonderful thing. We think this is what heaven is. Of course you want to go to heaven. Yes, everyone wants, you'd be an idiot to want, not want to go to heaven. That's the thought. Hell, we think, well, that's like the ghetto in Siberia in January. You know, it's like uh, it's, uh, my house is this rackety and the wind's blowing through and it's cold and there's not enough, we've got this coil lamp, there's not enough light, there's not enough heat, and everyone's got a cold or the flu and we all are grumpy and angry. See, that's hell. Who wants to go there? Well, no one in their right mind wants to go there. Everyone wants to go to the five-star resort. And so we can't understand, well, how come God would send people there and not here? Let's define heaven and hell, I think, more, more biblically for a second. Heaven, where you can go to, to worship God purely, regularly, 24-7. Not being forced to, but because you really want to. Where you can go in complete, pure submission to Him. Well, you're not hampered, but you really want to be in submission to him. But all of our sin and junk messes that up sometimes. But in heaven, you can be in pure submission to him. It, heaven is relationship with, with God, pure. It's an opportunity for me to serve and know him. Him as the, the creator, myself as the creature. Now, hell. How about we define hell as, I don't want to get entangled with God and whatever, and his wills and stuff. I really want to run my own ship. Thank you very much. Now, if we go on those two definitions... You want to go to heaven or hell? Richard Dawkins, atheist, understands this in his book, I think, The God Delusion. He says, if heaven is as scripture defines it, I don't want to go there. That would be hell for me. And he's absolutely right. Bottom line is, God will not force anyone to go somewhere they don't want to go. He will not force a relationship with himself. If someone says, I'm not interested, God says, okay. That's why C.S. Lewis says, says, in the long run, the answer to those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What is it they are asking God to do? To wipe out past sin and at all costs give them a fresh start? He did that on the cross. To leave them alone? That's what hell is. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. God won't force anyone. And I think if people knew what heaven was, biblically, in reality, they'd be saying, C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, the gates of hell are locked from the inside. They're not banging, trying to get into heaven. It's not, they're not interested in worshiping, honoring, honoring God. Jesus one day comes to his disciples. And he says, I'm going to leave soon. If y'all are going to complete the mission I'm calling you to, 
if you are going to follow me as you ought to, you have to have this idea of hell ringing in your mind. It's got to be uh, indelibly pressed on your conscious and on your subconscious. It's, and if it is, it will form every part of who you are. Understanding doctrine of hell aright, understanding hell aright transforms us. And it does in lots of different ways. I think gratefulness. You know, it's Thanksgiving time. We're going to be very grateful. We should, we should be very grateful for all the things God has given us, the material things God has given us. Absolutely. We should be thankful. But sometimes, sometimes we can be thankful um, for the chains that enslave us without even recognizing it. Um, the greatest gift. Can you imagine if you went to the doctor and you got a bad prognosis and he says there's absolutely nothing, it's incurable, and there's nothing we can do and you know, you've only got so much time and it's going to be lots of pain between now and then. And then he says, well, there, there is this one thing. It has never worked, ever. In the, it, theoretically, it should, but it just never has. It's too complex. And if you want, we can give that a shot. Well, you're young and you're thinking, you know, I get to see my, my kids or my grandkids and married and, and I, there's so many other things I wanted to do in life and it's just not fair and it's not right and you're angry and you're hurting, but you go with a procedure, what have you got to lose? And then, lo and behold, when you, you wake up coming out of the anesthesia and there's the surgeon and he's smiling big and he's saying, it worked. You, you're okay. You're going to be fine. Can you imagine? Ah, yeah. I mean, you, you would be so... So grateful, wouldn't you? Because you knew what you almost didn't have. You knew what you were condemned to. And then you, you, you realize very clearly the life that you have. It would, it, Jesus says if we're going to be grateful people, if we're going to be people living with the mindset that needs us to live with, uh, full gratefulness, it's going to be understanding hell. He was forgiven uh, much loves much, right? We will love and be grateful as we understand the, the concept of hell. Also, it's going to turn us, uh, understanding hell turns us into one who can love his, his enemies. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, some of you all know his story. Dietrich was a Lutheran pastor during World War II. He uh, uh, saw what the, the Nazism was doing to the, the Jewish people and joined a conspiracy to kill Hitler. He was caught, and um, uh, as he was moved from jail to jail to jail, he treated his cap- captives, captors uh, nice. I mean, not just amicable. He, he, was, he was generally concerned for them. He's Nazi guards. And uh, the Allies were coming in. If he could have hung on for two more weeks, he would have been freed. And the Nazis knew this, and so they ended up killing him. But... Um, one of his friends saw how he was treating these Nazi guards and, and wrote him and said, and said, Dietrich, how can you love these people? And uh, Bonhoeffer writes back, and he, he says this. He says, it is only when God's wrath and vengeance are hanging as grim realities over the heads of one's enemies that something of what it means to love and forgive them can touch our hearts. Let me read that again. It's only when God's wrath and vengeance are hanging as grim realities over the heads of one's enemies that something of what it means to love and forgive them can touch our hearts. The people that we have the hardest time loving, we can love them as we understand 
the destiny that, that, that awaits them, the, the consequences that await them, the, the fact that they are not necessarily the enemy as much as they are victims of, of hell, hell itself. We see everyone, they look fine, they look healthy, they look like everything's going fine, but if we could see them through heaven's eyes and we could see where they're at, and that's why Jesus says you've got to get this doctrine of hell embedded in your mind correctly because a right understanding of hell will transform you. It will help us to live our lives, whatever we have left down here, with an eternal, eternal focus that this is not my home. How I treat others, how I treat myself will be radically shifted if we hold to this idea of understand hell through Jesus' eyes. If we believe hell as Christ did, it will transform us, it will change us.